following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Well, hello. Um, very pleased to have you all here this morning. Um, if uh, if you're visiting with us or new here this morning, uh, um, welcome. And if you have uh, young ones, we do have a, a space to, um, if they need a break, they can go out or you can bring them out to that back room there. You don't have to leave them there. Please, please don't. Um, but uh, just um, just a little time for a time out, a space to do that. Or And if they make noise, they're welcome to do that. Uh, out here as well. We're just glad to have everyone here. Well, I hope uh, for those of you who were here last week um, and took up the challenge of reading the letter to Titus every day this week, I hope that was fruitful um, and will help you as we work our way uh, through this short letter uh, in the coming week. I wish Titus was longer, but it's not. Um, or just, uh, just that's been a blessing to me. I hope it's been to you as well. Uh, I want to ask you to raise your hands if you did it or not. I'm not guilty you into anything. I'm just trying to help. So we're looking at, um, we're going to be examining uh, Paul's introduction to this letter this morning. Um, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, that's page 998 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. And I think we have it up on the screen as well. You might have a hard time finding a page now, Kenny. It looked like your Bible just exploded. Well, they say a Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by somebody who isn't. But that's that doesn't hold true in this case. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a crying room out back too, Kenny, if you need it. <laughs> So we look at the introduction to this letter um, to Titus this morning, the first four verses. Um, this is incidentally, because uh, I like this kind of trivial pursuit sort of thing, this is Paul's, uh, the Apostle Paul's second longest introduction uh, in any of his letters, and it just happens to be, it's the second longest introduction and the second shortest letter um, of Paul, which I found entertaining and you didn't, and that's okay. Um, well, oftentimes when we read these letters, uh, we tend to hur- hurry through the introductions as if they were all basically the same. Um, they say the same things and they have the same purpose. And uh, but in the this introduction to Titus, there's so much more than just like, "Hey, Titus, it's me, Paul. What's going on?" You know, there's a there's a whole lot more. So we're going to read these first four verses and and then we'll we'll dive into them. Titus 1, one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, 
Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you speak to us through your word. We know these are your words and you have written them down and preserved them throughout the ages for our good. So we pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see your truth and open our ears to hear it and soften our hearts to receive it and apply it. We love you and thank you and give you this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in reading this introduction, what did you see? What do you see Paul is saying here? What I see, thanks for not interrupting me with your answer. Um, what I see is, yeah, right? That's okay. What I see is the summary of Paul's entire work as an apostle. This is his story as a follower of Jesus. His work as a slave of God, as one sent by God, had its origins in God. His end was to bring the elect to faith and through faith to bring them to the knowledge of the truth and through that truth bring them to a hearty and practical godliness which is built on the hope of eternal life which has as its heart the gospel as promised by God before time immemorial. That's what you're going to interrupt me with, right? Just just like that. Well, you're very clever because that took me a long time to figure out and write down. So I'm glad you're doing so well. This is just the introduction to this letter. It's packed full. And the reason that Paul gives this kind of introduction, as we talked about last week, was to give Titus not just instruction but to give his apostolic endorsement. Uh, his endorsement, Paul's endorsement, wasn't just to sell sneakers and T-shirts. It was to give credibility to Titus in the churches in Crete where he was ministering. Remember Crete? A little island in the Mediterranean, just south of Greece. And the truth is that people might not have listened to Titus if it was just Titus. Like he's, who are you? Why should we listen to you? Um, but they would listen to Titus, or at least they might be more likely to listen to Titus if Paul told them, listen to him. Um, at least that was Paul's hope. Remember that Paul planted the churches on Crete, so they knew him, and his word carried weight with them. So we're going to take a look, one little piece at a time, at Paul's introduction and endorsement of Titus. So let's start at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul calls himself two different things here. He says, a servant and an apostle. Um, the word for servant, a Greek word, um, you can write this down so you can impress your friends. The word is doulos. Mm, I don't know if that's really how you say it or not. But we say it with confidence, it doesn't matter. 
The word is doulos, which means slave. Um, more specifically, this type of slave, this kind of slave, was the kind that served in the lower decks of large sailing vessels, rowing or pulling at the oars. You know, we've seen those uh, old movies and stuff where all the guys are lined up on the benches, rowing at the oars. Those guys are called doulos, slaves. And when they stop rowing, rowing, they get beaten or killed. Sound like a great job. Uh, hmm. And this is how Paul saw himself, an under rower, just a slave of God, um, compelled to do the work that he has been given. And I know that uh, I often hold Paul in very high esteem, um, and I call him the great apostle from time to time. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the things that he said and the things that he did. But he saw himself as a humble slave. He didn't glow in the dark and walk on water, and he certainly didn't hold himself up that way. He says, I'm just rowing away in the belly of the boat. I'm doing the task that was assigned to me. This is a wonderful picture of Paul's humility, one that we can emulate. And in the same breath that he calls himself a slave rowing away in the belly of the boat, he also calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, um, in my estimation, again, this is the opposite end of the spectrum. You see yourself as a or you're a, you're a slave rowing away in the belly of the boat and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Hmm. The word apostle means one who is sent. He was sent by Jesus Christ for a specific purpose. Paul was chosen and sent out by Jesus Christ himself because he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. When Even when Paul, who was called Saul, which is his Hebrew name, he was on his way to Damascus to imprison uh, Christians simply for following Jesus, to sentence them to death for their faith. And as he's on the way there carrying letters from the high priest to arrest these people, Jesus himself stopped him on the road. The Lord Jesus stepped in and set him aside for this work. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15 Jesus said of Paul that he was a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's exactly what Paul did. And it wasn't because that's what he was on his way to do. He was on his way to do the exact opposite, on his way to try to destroy the church. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to use you as an instrument to expand the church. So here in the first few verses of, uh, first few words of verse one, Paul calls himself God's slave, showing his humility, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, indicating his authority, authority given to him by Jesus himself. But he goes on to reveal the entire purpose of his work in the rest of verse one, uh, which I already read to you from Acts nine, but that's okay. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, there's a lot going on uh, just right there. Even some things that scholars and regular folks have been arguing about for centuries. Um, but we're going to keep it simple because the word means what it means. It means what it's always meant. 
The meaning has not changed at all. And uh, I've said it before that it's a shallow. The word of God is shallow enough that a babe can wade in, a baby, and deep enough a scholar can drown in. Um, I don't know who you are or where you're at, if your head's up or head's down in that water, but <laughs> it's simple enough that we can understand it. Um, so first, let me ask you, from that statement, who are the elect? Hmm. Well, maybe. Simply put, these are all all of those people who ever have or ever will put your put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sin. So if you if that is you and you said us, you're right. Uh, if you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of your sin, you are among the elect. Um, that's not all of the elect, but that's a good chunk of it. God knows each one, and he always has known each one. And he has chosen us out of the world to make a people for his own possession. Those are words used later on in the letter to Titus. So Paul's purpose, first of all, he's a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus for the sake of the faith of the elect, that he might be used by God to either bring them to faith in Jesus, to find the elect and bring them to faith, or to help those who already do believe in Jesus to grow in their faith in Jesus, to either start the faith of the elect or to strengthen the faith of the elect. So there may be some who are... God considers elect that don't have faith in Jesus yet, but they will, and he knows who they are. We don't, and we can't afford to try to figure it out, so we share the gospel with everybody. And uh, when you stand in the ocean uh, at the beach and a wave hits you, not every piece of water hits you, just the water that does. You only get wet by a little bit. So that's what we do with the gospel um, we we dump it out all over everybody, and some people will get wet, <laughs> and we hope they come to faith. But that's between them and the Lord. That's not in the notes. That was really kind of whoa. Yeah. All right. We're gonna we're gonna go back to all right. So all right. Um, Paul is a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ first, for the sake of the faith of the elect, and second for the sake of their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, it's attempting a thing to separate truth from godliness and to treat them as two different ideas. Uh, You know the truth and you act in godliness. Uh, But in actuality, the aim and goal of the truth is godliness. They are inseparably linked. There have been plenty of people over the years that have gathered great truth in notebooks and journals, and they mark up their Bibles and even publish articles or books. Um, they might even have a YouTube channel or something like that. But if the goal is just to pile up truth in stacks so that you look smart or look like a biblical scholar or get enough clicks or likes so that you get sponsored by somebody, but to not actually work out godliness in practical ways is a wasted effort. Godliness is practical in all dimensions of life. If right thinking, if knowing all of the facts does not result in right living, there is something missing. You can know everything. It's just like knowing how to operate a parachute when you jump out of a plane, but not actually pulling the cord. 
This is a problem. I know exactly what I need to do. Whoops. It's the same thing. And it's honestly just as deadly in an eternal sense. The rest of this letter to Titus has a lot to do with practical godliness, good works, and how to live what you believe. Because following Jesus is not just a mental exercise. It is extremely practical. It's following Jesus, not just thinking about him. It's both. And all these things, godliness, knowledge of the truth, election, and faith, are all built on, as it says in verse 2, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The hope of eternal life. So what is hope? It's important to understand what it is. Hope is not just your wish. It's not just wishful thinking or pining away for something. It's not just, well, I hope I get a pony for Christmas. That's not hope. I hope it doesn't rain today. I don't think it will. But that's not really hope. That's just wishing. We just messed up the words. Hope, true hope, is confident expectation. It's knowing that something is coming that hasn't come yet. And what is our confident expectation upon which is built godliness and knowledge of the truth and election and faith? A hope for... Well, that's a wish. I wish, I really want... (sighs) Our confident expectation is an eternal life with Jesus. Right? And why is our expectation for eternal life so confident? Or at least, why should it be? It's because God, who never lies, promised it to us. And we can trust Him. Hmm. Have you ever stopped to think about what God's track record is for fulfilling promises? It's flawless. It's a hundred percent. And his, based on his past performance, we can be absolutely confident that he will continue to be flawless in fulfilling his promises. Numbers 23:19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? The answer to that, in case you're wondering, is no. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
having become a high priest forever. I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this one thing. God made a promise about you before time even began. That is what the scholars call the covenant of redemption. God decided before he created man that he would have to redeem us. And if you think about that for a moment, God, who is all-knowing, knew what would happen. He knew about Adam and Eve. He knew about the serpent in the garden. He knew about the sin of man, and he knew what was necessary to forgive us, the death of his own son. And he made us anyway. He made a promise about you before time began. God the Father promised God the Son a people for his own possession. And that's everyone who believes in Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17, verses 6 through 10. This is Jesus praying. He said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. God knows your name. And before time began, he knew what it was necessary to forgive your sin. He knew. Alistair Begg said, The God of the universe made a promise about you before time began for your birth, your rebirth, and your redemption. What a wonderful truth that is. All this was according to the eternal plan of our Father God. Look at verse 3. It says, And at the proper time, God manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. See, in God's appointed season, he brought to light his word, the gospel, a mystery that was hidden for ages past. That That is the content of the preaching that Paul was entrusted with, not just the action of preaching. The Greek word that's translated here, preaching, uh, again, impress your friends, it's the word kerygma. Go ahead and spell that, I dare you. It's a kerygma, and it is a noun and not a verb. Right, So the act of preaching, that's a verb. But the content of the message preached is a noun. And that's if Paul used the word as a noun. It means it's a thing and not an action. At the command of Almighty God, His message in His timing with His authority was entrusted to Paul, who entrusted it to Titus and to Timothy and to the churches through his letters so that, guess what, it could be entrusted to us the content of that preaching, and that is the gospel, that people can turn to God in faith in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of their sins and adopted by God as his children. What a wonderful message we've been given. God the Father is the author of our salvation. That's why Paul calls him God our Savior. 
And Jesus Christ is the means of our salvation. That's why Paul calls Jesus Savior. And we are all one united gospel family because we all have the same Savior, both the Father and the Son. That is why Paul could call Titus his true child in a common faith and wish him grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior, right? He says our Savior, not my Savior, ours together. Hmm. So that Timothy and Titus were truly brothers, and guess what? They're brothers of ours too, and they have their name in a Bible. How cool is that? That's our brothers. It's wonderful. And remember, um, again, going back to what the word meant to its original audience, we have to remember that Paul is a Jewish man. Titus is a Gentile, he's a Greek. These two uh, groups not uh, get together. They don't get along. The Jews had laws that prohibited them from even sharing a dish with a Gentile. And here Paul calls Titus his true child in the faith and his brother. The only thing that could have united a Jewish man and a Greek man at that time was a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in truth, that is the only thing that can truly, uh, that, that truly can or ever has united any group of people in forever. It's only faith in Jesus Christ that can truly unite people no matter where they're from. At its heart, this letter's not, uh, this letter was written not just to Titus, but as I've said, to the church. And as part of the church, we can share in the encouragement and the work of the great and humble Apostle Paul. We share the message, and we share the work of spreading the message to the world. Our work as slaves of God, as ones sent by God into our own spheres of influence, has its origin in God. The goal of our work is to bring the elect to faith, and through faith, bring them to the knowledge of the truth, and through that truth, to bring them into a hearty and practical godliness, which is built on the hope of eternal life, which has as its heart the gospel, as promised by God to us before time immemorial. Let's be about that work. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great calling you placed on your servant Paul, this great apostle that was sent out. But what's more amazing to us, Father, is that you have entrusted us with the same work to carry the same message 2,000 years later to a world that is vastly different from what Paul experienced, but is also vastly similar. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness to preach the word, and to preach the good news that Jesus died in our place on the cross so that by faith in him we could be forgiven of our sin, adopted as your children, and given eternal life in your kingdom. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not put their faith in Jesus as Savior, I pray they would simply turn to you in faith and ask for forgiveness and submit their life to you. Lord, we thank you so much for your great love for us and for your word to us this morning. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.